So, uh, Acts chapter 9. And uh, before we get into the text, I just tell me if you can relate to this. Um, I, I got saved. Uh, you know, when I, the moment I got saved, I thought there would be fireworks going off or something like that. It didn't happen. Um, but I did notice that as I began to read the Bible that it began to mean something to me. Uh, but the next thing I noticed were my friends. Uh, and uh, I'm like a lot of you. Uh, you know, I had friends that I engaged in perhaps some less than godly activities with. And uh, they began saying things to me like, you've changed. And th- but, but, you know, it, was, it wasn't a good thing. <laughs> it, it, they would shake their heads and go, you, you changed, John, you know, and, and at first, at, it, I, I mean, I was losing friends. Uh, people would just, well, I don't want to come, I don't want to hang out, you know, I, matter of fact, we had some tension with some family members, some of you have experienced that, but they shake their heads and go, you changed, it was like something bad had happened to me, and for a while it bothered me, and, you know, I, there was a draw to try and accommodate them, but I began to realize that God was doing something different in my life. And that we finally got to the point to where when they say you change, I go, yeah, I know. <laughs> Isn't it fantastic? You want to hear why? And they would go, no, and then they'd leave. Uh, so that transformation is what I want to talk to you about today. Uh, we can be changed. We will be changed with an encounter with Jesus Christ. An encounter with Jesus Christ will change you. There will be some evidence of that transformation. So we're in the middle of Uh, A month of prayer, fasting, and vision. This is week three. We're going to talk a little bit about fasting and how that might relate to that transformation that we're talking about. And we're going to do it by looking at three experiences that Paul has in this passage. We're going to see Paul's contempt in verses one and two. Then we'll see his conversion in verses 3 through 9, and then we'll see a deep and abiding communion that occurs in Paul in verses 11 and uh, 10 and 11. So let, let's take a look at Paul's contempt because it is considerable in verses 1 and 2. Um, verse 1 of Acts 9 says, but Saul, now uh, let, me, let me just get this out of the way, um, because we have Saul, we have Paul, they're the same person, right? Everybody has that, right? Okay, I just want to make sure you guys are with me. Don't fall asleep yet. We've got another four minutes before that happens. Okay? Um, we, we all think that somehow Saul's name got changed. It didn't. It didn't. Uh, Saul is the Jewish version of his name. Paul is the Roman version of his name. And I'll, I'll, I'll tell you why that's important to understand in just a little bit. So you'll hear me say Saul. Sometimes you hear me say Paul. They're interchangeable. Okay? So we're, we're going to look at Saul's contempt, but Saul, comma, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. Now, there's a couple things going on here. Number one, when it says he's still breathing threats and murder against the disciples, it means that Saul is bursting with this energy. He is absolutely consumed by his hatred and his, his desire to kill the followers of Jesus Christ. It is his passion. It is his focus. It's, it, it, everything that is driving him is driving him towards us. Now, he's had pretty good training. Uh, if you take a look at Acts, when the Spirit comes down at Pentecost, Peter does his sermon. The next major thing that happens is a guy named Stephen gets up and does a sermon. 
And Stephen's sermon knocks the legs out underneath everything that Judaism stands for. He stands up and he says, you know, you guys, you think a lot of Moses, you think a lot of the law, you think a lot of the temple, and all the Jews are going, yeah, yeah, yeah that's exactly who we are. We identify with all that stuff. He says, well, you never really obeyed the law. You did everything you could to, to disobey it. You, you say you revere Moses. All you did was complain and groan against him, and you rebelled against him as well. And you think the temple's something special? Well, let me tell you something. God doesn't live in houses made by man. And the crowd around him gets so incensed that they stone him to death. Now, there was a young man standing on the edge of the crowd named Saul. And it said that those who stoned him laid their cloaks at Saul's feet. Saul, one of his formative experiences is, is this is how we handle followers of Jesus Christ. They should be stoned. And so now we have this young man, Saul, who is consumed by his hatred for the disciples of the Lord. And he goes to the high priest. Now, there's another phrase that's kind of pregnant with meaning. Because at the time, the high priest was a Sadducee. Now, there were, there were a number of sects in, in Judaism back in the first century, but the two major ones were the Sadducees and the Pharisees. They were kind of like, in a way, opposing political parties. And they really didn't care much for each other. The Sadducees were very literal in their interpretation of Scripture, uh, very legalistic in how they applied it. Pharisees were a little bit more liberal, a little bit more experiential, and they didn't hate each other, but they did everything they could to not associate with each other and not to appear as though that they were supporting the other party. And Paul, who is a Pharisee, goes to the high priest who is a Sadducee. Now, we've got to see what is distinguishing Paul in just this first sentence here. He's a man of great anger. He's a man of incredible passion. And the passion is, is fed by the anger that he experienced. And he's a man who's willing to compromise himself. Okay? Our equivalent would be hands across the aisle, stepping across the aisle in the political scene. Paul's willing to compromise his political integrity in order to feed his anger. And all of that anger is, is focused on followers of Christ. So he goes to this Sadducee, and in verse 2, and asks him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, we get more insight to Paul here. He's willing to go on a missionary trip. He's willing to go outside the country. He's so consumed by his anger at the followers of Christ that he's going to hunt them down in other countries and bring them home. And make no mistake about it, he knows what happens to followers of Christ. He's bringing them home for execution. He has murderous intent. And he calls these people the people of the way. Now, the way shows up six times in Acts. It's the only place that it shows up in the New Testament, but it describes the newly forming church. Now, uh, there was a sect in Judaism back in the first century B.C., first century A.D., called the Way as well. They, uh, they, had a, 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 they were kind of like the Essenes. They, they had a, a practice of pious living, um, but what they were identified by was their lifestyle more than their politics, more than the way they practice their religion. And so Paul 
uh, Luke is now using this term, the way, to describe the followers of Christ. And what he wants us to see in this is that they're identified by their lifestyle. They're, that, now, they're not practices, practices of, of the Essenes. They're not followers of them, but they're followers of Jesus Christ. But they are distinguished by how they live. They have a new way. They have a new life. They have their meaning and purpose is in Jesus Christ. So we're seeing this contrast between how Paul is portrayed and how the followers of Christ are portrayed. Paul is set apart by his anger and his malice. And Jesus' disciples are set apart by their, their holiness, by their piety, by their love for each other. Paul is distinguished by his contempt and the followers of Christ are distinguished by their love and mercy. So that's the setting for the scene. You have this angry Paul who's so fueled with anger that he, he, he can't see reality for what's happening. And you have the followers of Christ who are noted for their compassion and mercy. Now that, that, that leads us up to Paul's conversion in verses 3 through 9. And, and Luke says, now as he went on his way, and I think Luke's playing with words here, uh, very purposeful phrasing, uh, as Paul went on his way, he's contrasting that to the way, the lifestyle of the followers of Christ and the lifestyle of Paul, and how there's such a, a uh, contrast between the two. Um, and we find out in Acts 22, this scenario plays out three times in Acts, it's in 22 and again in 24. Uh, and with each scenario, we get a little bit more detail. In Acts 22, we find out that while Paul's on his way to Damascus, it's about noontime. Now, if you've ever been in that part of the country, I know Jack and Scotty have, okay, you know that around noontime or so, the sky is cloudless, it is bright blue, and the sun is absolutely intense, regardless of what time of year it is. Okay, the only time you see clouds is it's going to rain, and then it'll rain for a short period of time, and the clouds go away. So it's noontime, and Paul's on the road to Damascus. And as he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. Now, if we don't understand Paul's context, we don't understand the nature of this light, okay? But Luke describes it as a light from heaven. Paul would be very familiar with the Old Testament scriptures. He knows what lights from heaven are. Paul would see this as the Shekinah glory of God. He's on the road to Damascus. He's on a mission he believes for God. And all of a sudden, this incredible light that is, is so bright that it outshines the sun at noon in Palestine begins shining down upon him. And I wouldn't blame Paul if he started thinking, wow, this is my moment. God sees me. Light from heaven is falling down upon me. The glory of God is being revealed in my trip here. Verse 4, and falling to the ground, this is an appropriate response because he's having what we call a theophany. The presence of God is showing up. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul. Now you know how time moves in slow motion when something significant is happening? And the text doesn't say so, but I, I, again, I believe Paul is going, this is it. The light knows my name. He's going to tell me what a great job I'm doing. 
He's going to tell me, you're on a mission from me. Get rid of these guys who are blasphemers. It says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Wait a minute. (laughs) It's not what he expected to hear. As a matter of fact, again, given the context, Saul is hearing a light from heaven speak to him. And it says, why are you persecuting me? Pay close attention. He's not saying, why are you persecuting my people? He's saying, why are you persecuting me? And again, I believe Paul's mind was working very fast here. I believe he's thinking, the only people I'm persecuting are these people of the way. What's going on here? So he, he may be a little bit confused, and so he expresses that, and he said, who are you, Lord? Now, we know that, that Saul believes that there's something happening in the heavenlies because he uses the word kurios for Lord. And there are times when that will mean sir or mister, but in most cases, it, in, in particular, if you're talking to a light from heaven, it means, who are you, Lord? Who are you, my God? He said, I don't understand what's going on here. Who is speaking? This is not consistent with the God that I've studied. It's not consistent with the God that I believe. Have you ever talked to somebody about Jesus Christ and the gospel and have them go, that's not my God? I've learned to say you're right. See, this is not the God that Saul had been worshiping. I'm not persecuting anybody but these bad people. And just in that phrase, why are you persecuting me? We see something precious. We see something that we have been celebrating all month long. We see the unity we have in Christ. You're persecuting these people who follow me. You're persecuting me. So Paul wants to know who this is that he's talking to. Well, and he, the the voice, said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. You know, this moment could get by us real quick. We could just read that and move on to see what happened next, but we have to understand everything that's happened here. Paul, Saul, was there when they crucified Christ. He was there when all those events happened in Jerusalem. Watched him stone Stephen because he was a blasphemer. Paul knew that Jesus Christ was judged, crucified, dead, and buried. Now, there were all these rumors that floated around, started by the Pharisees, that he didn't rise again. His followers were just saying that so that they could stay in influence and stay in power. But he didn't really rise again. People don't come back from the dead. See, it's important here when, when the Lord says, I am Jesus. He uses his given name 
He doesn't say, I am the Lord, I am your Savior, I am the Messiah. He says, I am Jesus, I am that human being that you know was crucified, that you know was put in a tomb, and I'm talking to you right now. All the rumors about my rising up from the grave are true, and you're having a confrontation with the one that you have rejected. It wasn't a plot. It's real. And not only are you having a confrontation with the one that you have rejected, you are persecuting me because of what you're doing to my people. We're one. We're one in God, one in Christ. They are my body. They're an integral part of me. We see this union in 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 3 through 5. But do you think, do you think he has Paul's attention? Do you think he got Paul's focus at this point? See, we, we don't look through this and begin thinking theologically. But when we begin applying our theology to what's going on, Paul realizes that his is all wrong. He's having a moment. He knew his scriptures. Sees the references to the Old Testament here. A little vague, but he knows them. See, up until this moment, if you take a look at Philippians chapter 3, you find out that Paul thought he was a zealous believer. That he was blameless. And now he's confronted by the reality of who Jesus Christ is. So Christ tells him, but rise and enter the city. And again, this is in the Greek, but there's Hebrew phrasing here. And Paul would hear, you're about to receive a commission. I'm about to give you something to do. I'm about to send you on a real mission, not the mission you thought you were going for. So Paul, Paul would hear that. And know that this is an important moment. And you will do what you are to do. Did you catch that? You will do what you are to do? And, you know, if I'm Paul, I'm like, oh, what is that? <laughs> okay? He said, go to the city, and you'll do what I'm giving you to do. Now, notice that the Lord doesn't say, look, Paul, I've got some options for you here. I've got an assignment. You can accept it. You can reject it. Think it over. Go home. Pray about it. Get back to me, let's say, in three days. He says, go to the city and do what you're going to do. And Paul hears this as a commission. And he's trying to process this. He's trying to figure out exactly what's going on. Meanwhile, he's got traveling companions. They're there with him. Verse 7, the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Again, we take a look at Acts 22. We find out that they heard something. It's an unintelligible voice. They're hearing, rah, 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 rah. They see the light, but they don't see it as a light from heaven. This revelation is private. This is for Paul alone. It's for Paul to process. Verse 8, Saul rose from the ground. Now watch this. I, I mean... We all want this, right? We all want that type of revelation. We want a voice from heaven, a light. We, we, we want to hear, well, God, what do you want me to do? 
Have you ever noticed in the Bible that when these things happen, it never turns out the way the people thought it would? I, I mean, when, when do we see the theophany? When do we see the Christophany, the appearance of God or Jesus Christ who shows up and goes, gee, you've been doing a great job. I just came down to pat you on the back. Whenever these things happen, these people are always called to do something that's nearly impossible for them to do without the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. And with, with Saul here, it's no different. Saul has his marching orders. He knows what to do. But check this out. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. He was blind. He couldn't see. God had blinded him. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. Now look, I think God was giving Paul a taste of what he had been living through for his entire life. I think Paul saw the scriptures, but he was blind to their meanings. And I believe that, that God was saying, you know, Paul, you thought you saw, but you've been blind. Let me show you what it's like to be blind, Paul. So he's dependent. And the thing that, that Saul knows is that God has made him blind. This is not, this is not gee, just happened to be a coincidence. Saul is acutely aware of the fact that God has struck him blind. And by then, he's probably figured out that if God has made him blind, the only way he's ever going to see again is if God does something new in him and heals him. So he's not only dependent upon the guys that are with him to take him to Damascus, but he's dependent upon God for healing. He doesn't really know that it's going to go away. But he does what he's told. Verse 8, Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days, verse 9, he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now, Paul has gone through a transformational experience. He's being what we would call converted, regenerated. And it says he neither ate nor he drank. Well, what does that mean? You know, he, he's, he's totally changing from this strong, independent man to somebody that's dependent on those around him, somebody that's humble before God. And so, why isn't he eating and drinking? I think... There are a number of people who want to explain this away and say, well, he was so traumatized he didn't have an appetite. Uh, he, was, he, he was so turned around inside that he didn't think to eat or drink. I don't think that's the case. I think Paul was an expert theologian. He knew scriptures as well as anybody in, in the Holy Land. And I think Paul realizes that, that something's happening, that he's got to reinterpret things. And what we're going to find out is that he didn't eat and drink because he was praying. Now, that leads us to Paul's communion. We've seen how contemptuous he was. We've seen the conversion he's gone through. And all of these experiences lead to a deeper communion with the Father. Verse 10 says, Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. That's usually a good way to answer the Lord when he calls you. 
the, uh, uh, I'm not sure, Paul, who are you, works real well, but <laughs> Ananias has the appropriate answer. In verse 11, and the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. Now, Ananias is a member of the way, he's a follower of Jesus Christ, he is probably in Damascus because the Christians fled Jerusalem when Stephen got stoned. This is the beginning of what they call the diaspora, the scattering of the Jews. So Ananias knows exactly who Saul is. And, and the Lord has been very precise, Saul of Tarsus. So Ananias is like, wait a minute, <laughs> you want me to go see this guy? I mean, by now, word has reached Damascus that Paul is on a scourge in the countryside and hunting down Christians to take him back for execution. Okay? So, he says, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, and again, the phrasing here is important. It means, it, it's kind of like, surprisingly enough, amazingly enough, I know you're not going to believe this, Ananias, but he is praying. Now, we find out that the Lord has orchestrated everything. He goes to Ananias and says, go look for Paul on a street called Straight. He's been praying. And later on in Acts 22, we find out that he had gone to Paul and said, there's a guy named Ananias in Damascus. He's going to come and pray for you. God is in total control of everything. And we find out that Paul's affliction has a purpose. There's a hint that there's going to be some harmony. There's going to be some unity here. And his plan is not to destroy Paul. Now, I just need you to think about this for a second. This man had dedicated his life to killing Christians. If anybody deserved to be smited, you know how much I love that word, it would be Saul. You would expect fire to come down out of heaven, not just a light, but fire to come down and turn him into a pile of ashes and cinders. But God has something different in plans for, for Saul. What would bring God more glory? To destroy Paul or to use him for his glory? See, that's what the transformation's about. Showing that God, we said it a few weeks ago, can redeem anybody. There's nobody beyond his redemption. He doesn't want to destroy Paul. He wants to use Paul. Well, you know the rest of the story. Ananias prays for Paul. Paul is healed. He goes away for three years, I think, to reassess his theology. He becomes a missionary to the Gentiles, which I just think is God's humor and irony. He sends Paul, the Jew of all Jews, to the Gentiles, and he sends Peter, the fisherman, to the Jews. Paul goes on to write nearly half of the New Testament. But what I want you to see here, I mean, there are a ton of lessons here to learn. That This is, this is just a rich, rich narrative. But what I want, I want to just narrow in on Paul's communion uh, through this supernatural encounter with Jesus Christ because it caused him, it caused him to fast. It caused him to fast. Now, we've been fasting for a month. We did one day, then we did two days. Some people did three days last week. Uh, and you know what? I've got to tell you something. I've just been so encouraged by the testimonies I've heard. 
um, uh, how difficult this is. Um, how many people know it's difficult to fast? More of you people should be raising your hands. <laughs> I got to tell you, do, do you play games with yourself? I do. You know, I, I, I'm in the middle of a day, and uh, I'm fasting, and I'm trying to devote the time I would normally spend to eating to being with my Father in heaven, okay? But I'm, I'm playing mind games, because I need some nutrition, don't I? And there's a piece of chocolate sitting on the counter, <laughs> and uh, that would give me some energy. I would need that energy to devote to the Lord, and... If I worry the chocolate, now how many of you know what worrying chocolate is? Yeah, most of you that have worried chocolate have been in my office. <laughs> you know, when you worry chocolate, you don't chew it. You put it on your tongue and you let it melt. And if I put the chocolate on my tongue and let it melt, it's no longer food, it's drink. <laughs> and surely the Lord wants me to drink something, doesn't he? <laughs> I mean, I play those games with myself, and, and you know, and I, I've, got to, I've got to pray for God to help me through those moments. And I know from your testimonies that a lot of you have gone through the same thing. Uh, and, and, you know, we, we made it clear, you don't have to fast food. You could, you, you fast some activity, something that you enjoy doing, something that you sacrifice in order to spend a little bit more time with the Lord, focused on Him, uh, looking at His Word, praying with Him. Uh, those are the things that we should be doing. And, and you know, I, I, a couple people say, well, don't ask me about fasting. I'm not supposed to call attention to myself. No, 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 that's not what that means, okay? I, I mean, it's okay to tell people I'm fasting. As a matter of fact, it's a good testimony. It, I want to devote this time to the Lord. I'm not going to do that. I want to devote this time to the Lord. What we're cautioned against doing is standing on you're eating food, I would not indulge in such a hedonistic activity as satisfying myself with the, the food of the world. I'm far too pious for that. So we don't want to make it into a prideful thing, but it's okay to talk about your fasting. So we've done that. We've done it for two weeks. Now we're finding out why. And as we embark on this week and go into a two-and-a-half-day fast, we're going to understand exactly what this means. It's more than just skipping a meal. It's more than just going hungry. It's more than simply spending time with God. That's a good thing. Those are all good things. But there's something far deeper here. And it lies in Paul's fast. Now, we've seen Paul's contempt, we've seen his conversion, we've seen his deeper communion. But now I want to talk about the role that fasting played in Paul's conversion. For three days, for three days, Paul focused on nothing but the Lord. He had no regard for himself. He had nothing to distract him. And i got to tell you, three days without food and water is enough to kill you. Not everybody would go, but you're getting close at the three days of taking no food and no water. So he's removed all the distractions. He is praying. He's consumed with the Lord. As much as he was consumed with his anger, he is now consumed by Jesus Christ. He's totally focused on God. It says he is praying. God is his highest priority. God has his full attention. Paul is relying on God not just to heal him of his blindness, but to sustain him, 
to get him through this period. And it is Paul's first gesture toward God as a regenerated man. Well, what does that tell us? What does it tell us about our fast? Number one, fasting should be a gesture towards God. It should say that we acknowledge our transformation. We acknowledge the grace that we receive. We acknowledge the sanctification that we're going through. It should proclaim that God is our very highest priority. And it should say that we trust Him in everything. We trust Him with our very livelihood. We believe that He will sustain us. It should be a gesture of appreciation for His presence and His power to get us through anything that we might endure. And maybe most importantly of all things, it demonstrates to God that we do not take our relationship with Him casually. He's a consuming presence in our lives. We're not frivolous about it. He's not there to serve us. We're there to serve Him. Those are all good lessons, amen? There's more. And we heard it in our scripture reading earlier when Pastor Scott read it in Luke 5. Christ is having an encounter with the Pharisees. And in verse 33, they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. And so the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. So what Jesus is saying is, I'm only here with them physically for a short period of time. And while I'm here, they're going to eat and drink to their fill. But there's going to come a time very shortly when, when I am tragically totally removed from their presence. And then they will fast. Now, we, we see that as a gesture of mourning, but it's not. Listen to me carefully. For those of you who have fasted, what's one thing on your mind? When's it, when does the fast end? <laughs> when, when can I eat again? Okay? The purpose of the fast is to give us a holy anticipation of when we will eat again. The purpose of the fast we see in Luke is to remind them that Jesus is coming back. And they just had a meal. And there's going to be a time of fasting. And when that fast breaks, it will be at another incredible meal in heaven. The fasting is there to remind us where our home is, where our trust and where our faith is. To remind us that there is an end to the fast where there will be abundance like we have never experienced before. So I'm going to ask you to do a hard thing. I'm going to ask you to fast this Friday and Saturday and Sunday morning in anticipation of breaking that fast together after the second service on Sunday. Chili cook-off, great stuff. Kelly and I have been cooking all day yesterday just to make sure that we can do our part in, in helping feed everybody. <laughs> yeah. But as you fast this week, whatever it is, some of you are physiologically unable to avoid food. That's okay. Give something to the Lord, something that you enjoy doing. Let it, that be your sacrifice. 
And then anticipate the end of that fast and let that be a reminder that there's an end to our time here. And at the end of that time, we will sit at a banquet table and eat to our fullest capacity for all eternity. And there'll be no more fasting after that. So what we're going to do, we're going to break up into small groups. I'm going to ask you to gather together four, five, six people, kind of like what we did last week. I'm going to ask the deacons and the elders and uh, for somebody to lead each small group in prayer. These are the things I would like to focus our prayer on. Uh, that number one, that Christ might be our highest priority. We're just going to take the lessons right out of what happens with Saul here. Uh, number two, that we repent from any anger that we're holding on to towards anybody. Uh, number three, that we may be distinguished by our love and by nothing more than the grace and mercy of God. Number four, that we would grasp the unity that we already have in Christ. We don't have to work for unity. We're already united in him. And number five, and this probably covers the other four as well, that we would be transformed, that we would be sanctified, that we would be drawn to our Father. We are transformed and being transformed at the same time. So I'm going to ask you to break up into your small groups, pray on these things, and after about five or six minutes or so, we'll close in prayer and we'll sing together again. Lord, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for who you're making us into. We pray, Father, that you give us a vision for how this body functions, for how we fit in it, Father. Give us a vision for the unique gift that you've given each one of us that contributes to your mission, Father, to your commissioning of our duty to share the gospel. We pray, Father, that you continue to knit our hearts together, that you join us with, with people outside this church that have a common calling, Lord, that we might see where we fit as a body and where we fit as individuals in that body. And we pray, Lord, by the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit that we will be enabled to walk in that vision, Father. And you, you would be honored. And your glory would be revealed in our transformation. In Jesus' name, we thank you for the grace that saves us.